Is that all the errands we have to do? Nope, but it's the end of the money we have to do them with. <laughs> Might as well head for the river then. Wait now, Emmett. Didn't Sam Turtle pay you for fixing his steps yesterday? Uh, no. I was the one who broke them. Oh, Emmett. You with your odd jobs, me with my socks and pumpkins. No wonder we're so rich. Aw, uh, we'll make out. You gotta have faith, Ma. Oh, I got plenty of faith. I spent all those years married to a snake oil salesman, didn't I? Well, Pa should have gotten rich on snake oil, but there just aren't enough people who want to oil a snake. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, did you miss me? I might have. It's good to be back. We finished up our first season. Now we're diving into season two, starting off with something really special. But before we start, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Please check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and the cesspool that is Twitter, and also lunaticdaring.com, where we have our latest episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. Today, we are talking about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. You'd never seen this before, had you? I had not. It's going to be very difficult for me to be objective. I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it, but I'm just warning you, it's impossible for me to be objective about this thing. It's okay, Chad. We've discussed things where they're very, very sacred to you and like not necessarily sacred to me before. We won't go into like the Kubrick topic because I know that that's a hot button, but... Let's get things started. It feels like we say this a lot, but it's never not true. And I guarantee we'll say it again. The next project was going to be the most ambitious Jim Henson had ever attempted. The last Muppet Christmas special had been the Great Santa Claus Switch back in 1970, and it was time to try it again. And he had found his project, a 1971 children's book that appealed to his Mississippi sensibilities. After securing the rights, Jerry Jewell immediately started working on a treatment. After delivering that in November, they started to pump out drafts of the screenplay never straying too far from the book or from Jules' initial treatment. The special would film in Toronto in the March of 77, during the Muppet Show's four-and-a-half-month hiatus. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you get it lifting something? And would use the largest sets they had ever built, including massive, naturalistic, platformed-up sets and a working 10-foot-wide, 55-foot-long river that snaked its way through an entire Canadian soundstage. Songs had to be written. It would have more original music than any previous Muppet production, and the songs were vital in telling this story the way Jim wanted to tell it. Luckily, Jim had the right person working on that. So far as the puppets, they were going to have to break out all the tricks. Hand and rod puppets would be augmented by marionettes, black theater techniques, and radio control, a technology they were just starting to adapt to puppetry. But don't worry, Jim had the right person working on that, too. It would feature an entirely new cast of characters, one famous frog, excepted, of course, a variety of woodland critters and characters to populate the impressive sets. Don Celine and Carolee Wilcox were hard at work in the New York workshop, designing and building from sketches by Michael K. Frith. Jim had told them to use the source material as their Bible, and to make the puppets as faithful to their original illustrations as possible. So instead of using Henson's doodles as a jumping-off point, Frith and Selim were tasked to mimic and adapt the drawings of a woman named Lillian Hoban. 
Lillian Aberman had always wanted to be an artist. In 1939, when she was 14, she started taking classes at the Philadelphia Sketch Club. She had dreams of being an illustrator, and these trips to the Sketch Club would help make those dreams come true. The youngest of three sisters, Lillian attended an all-girls high school, so the co-edness of the Sketch Club must have been exciting. And there she met Russell Hoban, also 14 also an aspiring illustrator and writer. Russell was from the Philly suburb of Lansdale. His parents had immigrated from Ostrug in what is now considered the Ukraine. His father, an advertising manager at a Yiddish-language newspaper, had passed away when Russell was 11, and he was being raised exclusively by his mother. We're not sure if it's technically correct to call Lillian and Russell high school sweethearts, since they didn't go to high school together, but when you meet at 14 and get married at 19, it seems like the best way to describe them. After high school, Lillian took a scholarship to major in illustration at the Philadelphia Museum School of Art, and Russell attended Temple University briefly before dropping out and enlisting in the army. It was 1943, so there was this little war thing going on. A date which will live in infamy. And Russell was deployed to Italy and the Philippines as a radio operator, where he would earn a bronze star. In 44, while he was home on leave, Russell and Lillian were married. After the war, they moved to New York, where Lillian gave up art and began to study dance at the Hanya Home Studio, considered to be one of the big four founders of American modern dance. Russell worked as an illustrator, painting covers for Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and the Saturday Evening Post, and was a copywriter at the advertising firm Batten, Barton, Durstein, and Osborne. After a decade of studying, performing, and teaching dance, Lillian gave it up after their second son, Brahm, was born. The Hobans left New York and moved an hour away to Walton, Connecticut. In 1959, Russell wrote and illustrated his first children's book. What does it do and how does it work? Power shovel, dump truck, and other heavy machines. The next year he wrote Bedtime for Francis, about a temperamental young badger and her family. Francis became Hoban's most endearing character, and he ended up writing six books and a poetry collection about the precocious mammal. The first Francis book featured pictures by Garth Williams the artist for Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little, and Little House on the Prairie. But the second volume, 1964's A Baby Sister for Francis, was illustrated by Lillian. She kept Williams's designs largely intact, including Francis being a badger, she was originally supposed to be a vole, but brought her own style and charm to the books, using their daughter Phoebe as the model for Francis. It was the first of the couple's two dozen collaborations as writer and artist. Some of the bigger titles, aside from the Francis series, include The Sorely Trying Day, Charlie the Tramp, The Stone Doll of Sister Brute, and Harvey's Hideout. In 1967, they released The Mouse and His Child, a dark psychological tale for older children. It's kind of uh, a proto-toy story, although a little darker. Well, maybe not darker than Toy Story 3. Uh, but it's about a pair of toy mice, joined by the hands and operated by clockwork who are bought at a toy store, discarded, and then set off on a quest to become self-winding. Russell considered Mouse and Child to be his first real novel. By then, the Hobans were earning enough royalties from their books for Russell to concentrate on writing full-time. But he began to suffer writer's block after he was diagnosed with diabetes. In 69, the family relocated to London to hopefully provide Russell a little creative shakeup. The Hobans' marriage quickly crumbled, and Lillian took the kids back to Connecticut. While their marriage and their creative partnership was over, they wouldn't officially be divorced for another few years. Russell would remain in the UK as an expatriate for the rest of his life. The last book written by Russell and illustrated by Lillian was created in 1969, but not released until 71, after they'd separated. 
It was a Christmas tale, their only such endeavor, and for the plot. Russell reached back to the turn of the century in one of the most beloved holiday stories of all time. Whistlin' Dick's Christmas Stocking is the tale of a professional drifter traveling in Louisiana, doing everything he can to stay clothed and fed without having to do an actual honest day's work. It technically takes place around Christmas, and there is a stocking in it, I guess, but the short story, which debuted in the December 1899 issue of McClure's Magazine, can't honestly be called a Christmas story. It is, however, the first time the story's author, William Sidney Porter, published anything under his most famous nom de plume, O. Henry. At the time of the story's publication, Porter was a year and a half into a five-year stretch at the Ohio Federal Penitentiary in downtown Columbus. He wasn't really doing hard time. The 37-year-old North Carolina native had a pharmacist license, a remnant of one of his many previous lives. He had been a druggist, a ranch hand, a draftsman, a publisher, a newspaper writer, and a bank teller, which is the one that got him put in the slammer. But his pharmacy experience allowed him to work in the prison hospital, and that netted him his own room in the hospital wing, away from the general population. It also gave him time to read. He had been devouring literature of any and every kind since he was a boy, and, more importantly, to write. Born in 1862 in Greensboro, smack dab in the middle of the Confederacy, Porter had moved to Texas in his early 20s, the dry air doing wonders to clear away the nagging cough he had developed. There he found gainful employment, and in 1887, a wife. 19-year-old Athol Estes, daughter of a wealthy man, but sick with consumption. They would have two children, a boy, who died hours after birth, and a girl, Margaret. After a brief time as a draftsman for the Texas land office, which paid him well enough to feed both his family and his two worst habits, drinking and writing, Porter took a job as a teller and bookkeeper at the First National Bank of Austin. After three years working there, his books came up short by $858.08, which is a little bit less than twenty seven grand with 2021 inflation, which, I mean, that seems like a lot. The bank accused him of embezzling the money and fired him, but didn't press charges. Imagine stealing twenty seven k from your job and just getting a pink slip. Porter then set up his own weekly magazine called The Rolling Stone. No relation in which he self-published his early stories. Despite having a circulation of around 15,000, the humorous rag didn't last long. It just wasn't making William enough money to live on. But his writing caught the attention of an editor at the Houston Post, and he, Athol, and Margaret left Austin in 1895, and Porter started as a writer for the now-defunct Texas Daily. Then the cops came and got him. Turns out, while the bank was willing to just let him walk out the door with 27 grand unaccounted for, the feds weren't. During an audit of the bank, his alleged misdoings were discovered, and he was federally indicted and quickly arrested on charges of embezzlement. After posting bail, Porter freaked out and ran to New Orleans at first, then to Honduras, where there was no extradition treaty with the U.S. There, he wrote his book of short stories, Cabbages and Kings, in which he coined the term Banana Republic in describing his Central American hideout. But soon he got word that his wife's tuberculosis had taken a turn, and he returned to Texas and surrendered to the authorities. Athol died five months later, with her husband still awaiting trial. Porter didn't put up much of a defense in court, uh, probably because he did it. <laughs> William was sentenced to five years in the Ohio pen. He would get out in three for good behavior. During his time inside, he released 14 stories, including Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking, under several different pseudonyms. To hide his incarceration from potential publishers, Porter would send his manuscripts to a friend in New Orleans, who would then submit them for him. After prison, William, who was writing primarily as O. Henry now, or sometimes Oliver Henry, moved to New York to be near his publishers and started writing 
like a demon. He composed nearly 400 short stories after arriving in Manhattan, at one point writing a story a week for over a year for the New York World Sunday Magazine. O. Henry's short stories were loved by readers and largely dismissed by critics. They were known for their casual, playful narration that wasn't afraid to take tangents or editorialize or make jokes, and their surprise endings that tended to wrap things up with a clever stroke of comedic irony. Some of his more famous short stories include The, uh, the Ransom of the Red Chief, The Cop and the Anthem, and The Caballero's Way, a western that introduced the Cisco Kid a character Porter ever only wrote about once, but spawned nearly 30 films between 1914 and 1950. On December 10, 1905, the New York Sunday World published the latest O. Henry story. It was a Christmas tale, and featured two characters that embodied the spirit more than old Whistlin' Dick ever did. And it was named after the most famous present bearers in Christendom. It was called Gifts of the Magi. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came three wise men from the... Actually, this is stupid. Wouldn't you rather hear Johnny Cash do this part? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Melchior, a king of Persia, Gaspar, a king of India, and Balthazar, a king of Arabia. These three kings, also known as the three Magi, who came from the Orient at the behest of their prophet, followed a star to see the newborn future king of the Jews, and brought him three gifts as tribute. This visitation is known as the Adoration of the Magi. Most are familiar with the image. The wise men huddled around the infant Christ in nativity scenes in either the front lawns of churches or on the hearths of Christian homes. In 1857, John Henry Hopkins, Jr. wrote the first major American Christmas carol, from the point of view of these men from the East. Originally entitled Three Kings of Orient, but also called The Quest of the Magi, or as it is known today, simply, We Three Kings. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we travel afar. Believer or not, Christian or not, 
you're most likely familiar with the song and with the biblical story it conveys, but not so fast. If you listen to Johnny Cash, and why wouldn't you listen to Johnny Cash, you heathen, you'll remember that the story presented in scripture, the book of Matthew, chapter 2, is a lot fuzzier on the details than the Hopkins song. No edition of the New Testament tells you how many of these visitors there were. Could be three. Could be three hundred. But with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the shorthand just becomes three gifts equals three magi. Their names, also, do not appear in the Bible. They were added on as Christian traditions and legends grew, the earliest mention dating to a Greek manuscript composed in Alexandria around 500 AD. Matthew only states that the kings came from the east. Anything east of the Mediterranean was considered the Orient back then, but gives no clues to their actual nationality. If these men did exist, they were most likely coming from the Parthian Empire, basically ancient Iran that stretched from Turkey to western Pakistan for almost 500 years. While many nativity scenes depict the three kings present at the birth of Christ beaming at him in the manger alongside Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and some various animals, the Bible gives no such indication. It is believed that they have visited months, maybe years later, but are usually included in the nativity stories to simplify things. The constant, in all interpretations, are the gifts brought for the young Christ. Gold, obviously a metal of great value, but also a symbol of royalty on earth, representing the child as the future king of the Jews. Frankincense, an aromatic resin used in incense and perfumes as a symbol of deity and godliness. And myrrh, also made from resin. It has many uses, one being as an embalming fluid which could make it a symbol of death, which seems a little hardcore to bring to a baby, but given how things turn out for him, maybe not so crazy. It is with these magi and their offerings that the tradition of giving gifts to celebrate the birth of the Savior was born. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. The first three Christmas presents. O. Henry's Gifts of the Magi is the story of Jim and Della Young, a married couple struggling to rub two nickels together. It's Christmas, and Della really wants to get James a new platinum chain for his family heirloom, a gold pocket watch. To get the money, she goes to a hairdresser's shop and sells her famously beautiful hair for $20. When Jim comes home, he obviously sees that his wife's hair is short now, or as O. Henry puts it, like a Coney Island chorus girl, and she explains to him what she did. And then he gives her his present, a new set of jeweled tortoise shell combs for her famously beautiful hair, for which he hawked his watch to get the money. The couple are left with nothing but two useless gifts and their selfless and absolute love for each other. The final paragraph of this very short story explains its title. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat, who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. They are the Magi. 
Porter would include The Gift of the Magi, as he had now renamed it, in his 1906 anthology, The Four Million. It is a perfect O. Henry story. The narration is casual and easy and funny, and it ends with a clever, bittersweet twist that brings it all home. It's a classic about the true spirit of Christmas giving. It's been adapted for film and television, and its central premise and ironic denouement have been copied and deconstructed and absorbed into countless other stories, including the final book by Russell and Lillian Hoban, published 65 years later. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is about, well, an otter named Emmett and his widowed Ma, who, like O'Henry's young family, are struggling to make ends meet. Ma does laundry for the wealthier residents of their rural home, Frogtown Hollow, and Emmett does odd jobs, and neither of them make very much money doing it. It's been a rough year, and they both want to get the other something special for Christmas. A nice guitar for Emmett, and a piano for Ma. When word comes of a talent contest in nearby Waterville, they separately decide to enter the show, hoping to win and use the cash prize to give the other the gift they so deserve. But, also like the youngs, the otters must make sacrifices. Ma hawks Emmett's tools, which he uses for odd jobs, to buy fabric for a dress to perform in, and Emmett puts a hole in his mother's wash tub, her main source of income, to make it into a stand-up base for the jug band he has formed with his friends. The art is pure Lillian Hoban, colorful and full of life. The characters, like those in the Francis books, are expressive and have real personality. The world of the book, the rustic setting, the menagerie of simple-talking anthropomorphic animals, and the plain down-home countryness of it all reminds one of the works of Beatrix Potter, Joel Chandler Harris, or maybe Kenneth Graham. It's also not far removed from Walt Kelly's Pogo, the successful newspaper strip that ran from 1948 to 1975 that followed the adventures of the title character, a possum, and his other animal friends in the Okefenokee Swamp. It had been the favorite comic strip of a young Jimmy Henson, who had spent his career thus far creating a cast of characters not unlike Kelly's. That's probably why he bought the rights. The Muppet crew descended on Toronto in March of 1977, taking over one of the largest sound stages in the city to film what Dave Goles would later describe as one of his top three projects of all time. The sets, built by Frog Prince production designer William Beaton, were amazing. In addition to the sizable winding river and all the platformed locations, complete with removable floorboards and walls so that the puppeteers could get anywhere they needed, there was a lighting rig to simulate the different times of day. Other locations, like Emmett and Ma's house, uh, the streets of downtown Waterville, the Jug Band's treehouse hideout, and the auditorium used for the talent show were all meticulously constructed, based on designs by Frith doing his best to emulate the style and the world of the Hoban book. But sets are nothing without characters to populate them. And while Wilcox and Celine were hard at work translating the denizens of the hollow into Muppet form, the production required more than waste-up hand puppets. It needed a little movie magic to bring them to life. And when looking for magic, the best thing to do is ask a wizard. Franz Foz Fazakis was born April 5, 1918, in Essex County, New Jersey. After serving as an army private in World War II, the high school dropout worked as an organ builder before he found his way into puppetry, working for the great Bill Baird in the 50s. He also joined a company called Berkeley Marionettes in New York, and through them ended up doing puppetry in some Broadway shows, a few times alongside a young Jerry Nelson. His first job for Jim Henson was on The Muppet Musicians of Bremen, where he served as an additional performer and also did the voice of one of the chickens. Not sure which one, though. That show had a lot of chickens. 
While he got his start as a puppeteer, he became Henson's gadget guy, according to Muppet Wiki, devising mechanical devices to increase the range of movement and expression in the puppets. He was head of the electromechanical department of the Muppet Workshop. He made Big Bird's eyes move and Fozzie's ears wiggle. He was a big part of a lot of projects that we'll talk about down the road, but Emmett Otter would be his first huge contribution. They had built a 55-foot-long river, and Jim wanted to see Emmett and Ma on their way to deliver the week's laundry to rich folks, rowing along and singing. Foz's job was to make that happen. Ditto the River Bottom Boys, who would drive cars and even snowmobiles. Jim wanted to show them in wide shots, and marionettes wouldn't cut it. Oh, and Kermit, who would be back in his old Tales from Muppetland role as narrator, needed to ride a bicycle again, but they already had that one covered. The answer for many of these problems was radio control, but getting them to row, drive, and pedal was one thing. What if he wanted to make them sing while doing so? According to Brian J. Jones, quote, It was a project both designer Don Celine and techno wizard Foz Fazakis devoured, building puppets of different sizes with different functions. Foz built a remote control system that uh, could work a puppet's mouth. It was kind of a mitt that you would work like this, and it had ratioed gears that would uh, move the mouth of the puppet. So you, so that this Emmett Otter could be out in the middle of the, the river in the boat with his ma, and I could be sitting up at a table uh, off, you know, on the side, and uh, I could work this mitt and turn the head, and Emmett's head would turn one way or the other, uh, work the mouth, and his mouth would work. So Foz had figured out how to make the Muppets sing via remote. Now they just needed something to sing about. At the beginning of March, the Muppet performers gathered in Los Angeles to record the songs for Emmett Otter. They were written by Paul Williams, whom Jim had taken a shine to the past June when he had guest starred on The Muppet Show. They had expressed an interest in collaborating on something in the future, and in January of 77, they sat down for dinner, and Jim pitched Paul the show. It felt like the warmest, funniest thing to tune into, said Williams. Something in me lit up when I was exposed to anything Jim Henson did. So when they asked me to come over, I was really happy to do it. I'm not going to go back over Paul Williams' history. Just go back and listen to our episode number 111, the old telephone pole bit for Paul's life story. Henson needed a whole new slate of songs, though, ones with a Tin Pan Alley feel that would seem just right at home in Frogtown Hollow. The tunes that Williams provided did just that. There's just one wonderful song after another, Michael Frith said later. Jug Band Christmas is a musical first and foremost, and in great musicals, the songs do more than one thing at once. They had to be fun, obviously, and catchy. They should advance either the story or the characters, preferably both, and they should feel like part of a whole thematically and stylistically linked to the narrative they are supporting. The soundtrack to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is magical. No wonder Jim would turn to Williams again in a year when it came time for the Muppets to hit the big screen. Production began on March 13, 1977. Jim would direct a familiar ensemble, Jerry Nelson as Emmett, his sweet voice matching the young Otter's kind disposition. Our shop, the, the Muppet shop, had so faithfully reproduced the characters as they were in the book. I mean, Emmett looked just like Emmett in the book, and Ma looked like Ma in the book, and they did an amazing job, as they always did in any project. 
And of course, it makes a, a, a puppeteer's job all the easier because you have this wonderful character that's fully who they are just from looking at them. Frank Oz would handle Ma, although in post-production his voice would be dubbed over by Marilyn Sokol. Emmett's titular jug band would be rounded out with the rest of the regular Muppet performers. Dave Golds took the role of Wendell, Emmett's dim-witted porcupine best friend, who blows a mean jug. Richard Hunt played Charlie Muskrat, who played the cigar box banjo. And Jim, whose puppetry in the special is uncredited, would handle Harvey on the washboard. Aaron Oscar was on hand for many of the female characters, including the haughty Cretchen Fox and Ma's best friend, Teddy Muskrat. But the Frogtown Hollow Jubilee Jug Band wasn't the only act in town. The Riverbottom Nightmare Band, the group of unruly toughs from a few towns over, would be Emmett and the boys' chief rivals throughout the special. In the book, they're simply a band that competes in and wins the talent show. But in the script, Jewel had expanded their role, making them true antagonists throughout the story. Like the Electric Mayhem, the Riverbottom Boys would be played by the five key Muppet Boys. Chuck, Frank Oz, the intimidating Ursine gang leader and keyboardist, Stanley Weasel, Jerry Nelson on guitar, Fred Lizard, Richard Hunt on drums, Howard Snake, Jim Henson on bass, and Catfish, Dave Goles, who really doesn't do anything but swim in a fish tank and spit water at people. It only took 12 days to shoot Emma Otter's Jug Band Christmas. It also produced maybe the greatest outtake reel in the history of outtake reels. Stop what you're doing, go to YouTube, and watch the Emmett Otter outtakes. They're a must-see. You can finish listening to this later. We're not going anywhere. Okay, you're back? Good. After eight days of editing, and then a week or so of sound mixing in April, the special was done. The cast headed back to the States to enjoy the last few weeks of their hiatus. That means that we're on vacation. Although they would also record the first official Muppet Show record during that spring, so it wasn't all fun and games. To introduce this record, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you the first original genuine no money back guaranteed Muppet Show cast album. And Jim went about finding a home for the new special. It turns out, after all this, getting Emmett Otter on the air would be the hardest part of the whole thing. All the major networks passed. Bernie Brillstein finally landed a less-than-ideal debut. Uh, the only network willing to take it was the Canadian Broadcasting Company, who would air it that December 4th. Henson would have to wait another year for it to be shown in the U.S. on a subscription cable service with a very small install base, decades before it would change television and introduce us to the likes of Tony Soprano and the Mother of Dragons. Go back, Gavy! Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. By my count, 1,977 years in the making made its U.S. debut on HBO on December 17th, 1978. Hi all, this is Kermit the Frog, and I'm here to tell you the story about Emmett Otter's... <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Uh, it's a good thing uh, I didn't damage the sign here. So, um... 
Nick. I grew up with this thing. So like what I would like to hear is as someone who was an adult man, what was your experience watching Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas for the first time? Three things come to mind. And the first, and I guess the most prominent thing is it's not something I grew up with, but it, it occupies a similar space to I don't get excited for Halloween or Christmas. I haven't for years. I And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but if I have kids, I'll get excited for those things again, because I like the idea of sharing it with them. And this strikes me as something that I would really like to to share with the next generation. Some of the other things that stuck out to me were the way that they'd set up the set, and specifically the colors they used for the sky, reminded me of the storyteller, and I kept waiting for John Hurt to pop out. I knew he wasn't going to, and it made me sad, but like, that's not, that's nothing against Emmett Otter, because... Yeah, he was too busy making Alien at the time. Yeah, that would have been concurrent, wouldn't it? And the thing popping out of his chest could have very easily been an otter. We could have, like, it could have gone full Christmas horror. And here's where I put in the clip from Spaceballs. (laughs) Oh no, not again! Long story short, I think it's very, very solid. It doesn't have the same emotional resonance for me that I think it has for a lot of people. But it did feel like a Tales from Muppet Land episode. I was glad to see Kermit, because I'm always glad to see Kermit, but I don't know that Kermit added much with that initial narration. Maybe it was just a good way to onboard people to get interested in the story. But yeah, I think that's what it's for. One of the other things that stuck out to me was... I can't remember the last time I saw Henson and Associates using marionettes, like directly using marionettes and you seeing them actually like lift the leg and drop the leg and things like that. I know that Foz had helped with innovations in terms of like them being able to do things remotely, but you would still see them have the marionette running when they needed someone to move across the stage. And it was entirely a practical thing. I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. It's just something I noticed because I don't remember seeing that as often with the Muppet crew. This special mixes several types of puppetry to tell its story. Michael K. Frith says in the documentary about this, I've never seen a cut from a hand puppet to a marionette that I believed. <laughs> and I, I don't know that much of anybody else does has either. I think, um, though, we do tend to be very forgiving in these kinds of scenes. Like, if I were a kid watching it, it wouldn't have broke immersion. We are looking at the technical aspects of what's going on, so it's something that we're going to have an eye out for. But if I'd seen this when I was five or seven, it wouldn't have pulled me out at all. I would have just assumed that that's how they walked. This special uses, you know, kind of traditional Muppet hand and rod puppetry. It uses marionettes. It uses radio control. And also, if you notice during the talent show, it uses black box stuff. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned the storyteller because one of the things that struck me watching it with a more critical eye this time This is really, truly the first world Jim got to build. And one of very few, to be honest. The Muppet movies are all going to take place in our world. It's not till we get to the Dark Crystal where he gets a chance to create a world like this again. Yeah, I guess the closest we would have been would have been the Frog Prince, because even Tinker D was pretty contained. I mean, they took over the largest soundstage in Toronto to build this magnificent set. It was nothing like they'd ever done. They created this entire world. They sprinkled real grass around and then put fake snow over top of it. But the lights in the studio were so hot that real grass started to spring up. Technically, while, yes, it's obvious when you cut from a hand puppet to a marionette, it's still the most advanced thing they had done. It was the most ambitious thing they had done. Everything they had taught themselves. And, you know, and Paul Williams mentions in the documentary that Jim came to me and he said, we're planning to do a a Muppet movie. But before we do that, we're going to try out a few things, and we're going to do that with this thing for HBO called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. So this is also kind of a camera test for the Muppet movie. For people, we watched, there are like 900 versions of this special. There's the original 
as it aired on the Canadian Broadcasting Company. And then that same version aired on HBO a year later. But then in 1980, it aired on ABC. And that's the version we watched with the narration. It's the only version that has the Kermit narration. And that's the one I grew up watching. And then in the 90s, it got released on DVD. But by then, Disney had bought the Muppets. And so they had to cut Kermit completely out of it. And now the more recent editions have put Kermit back into it, but not the narration. The Muppet Wiki has a really great breakdown of all the different versions, and I watched like three or four of those versions this week, and they're all pretty much the same, but there's a clip here, a clip there. Now, apparently some broadcasts cut out Ain't No Hole in the Wash Tub, and I would like to tell those people to get out of entertainment. There was probably a time when I was a, when I was a teenager and into my 20s where I didn't watch Emmett Otter at Christmas because I was too cool, but before that, it was a Christmas staple. And then when I got older and when I got married and my wife's a Muppet fan, we started watching it. And then we've definitely watched it every year with my kids. There are very few pieces of filmed entertainment that make me feel as warm as Emma Daughter. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas was produced March 13th to March 25th, 1977, uh, shot in Toronto, like I said. It debuted in Canada on December 4th, 1977, and then in the U.S. on HBO in December of 78, a year later, although HBO had like, I don't know, like 10 people paying for them then. It was a very small audience. It was written by Jerry Jewell, adapted from the book by Russell and Lillian Hoban, directed by Jim Henson, with music by Paul Williams. I wrote down how long it was, but then... That depends on the version. <laughs> so it's around 50 minutes. Take all my sentiment out of it. This is a milestone for Henson. Definitely is. Like it's, there's this, like post season one of the Muppet Show, they've had a successful season. They'd got off to a bit of a rough start, but this is them stepping away and like figuring out how to apply what they're doing to something that isn't necessarily related to Kermit and Fozzie and the others. It's its own self-contained thing. I love the, the mainline Muppets very much, but I've always been someone who's very drawn to, I guess, some of the more self-contained stories that, that Jim would tell. Um, and so it is interesting to see how we're slowly progressing toward those as well. Well, it's also interesting because one of the dictates for the design crew, you know, these aren't Jim's creations. He handed the book to Michael Frith and Don Celine and Carolee Wilcox and said, I want them to look like these characters, which is also something we haven't really seen. We've seen him adapt other stories, but he would always then populate them with characters he created. These characters look so much, with a few exceptions, look so much like they do in the book. What I love about the actual, the actual puppets themselves is they're, they're kind of small. And so actually, I think they're so much more expressive in a way because all that's there is hand and a thin line of fabric. There's no big mechanisms. We're not talking Big Bird or Sweetums where there's all this stuff going on inside, right? These are just hand puppets, and they're very expressive, and it makes it feel more kind of intimate to me. I encourage people to go look for behind-the-scenes shots of Jim and the gang like making this. There's lots of them out there. Get all these really cool images of how the sets were constructed and how they did certain things, you know, including the radio-controlled stuff. You got to go back to 1977, 1978 or like me, probably 1980 when you first see it. These are Muppets that were rowing on a river. And you know there's nobody under that boat, right? <laughs> like you instinctively know there's not somebody under the boat operating them. And with my adult eye, I can see they're obviously not quite as articulated as a hand puppet would be. They're not quite as expressive as a hand puppet would be. But the radio control stuff is still pretty impressive. And at that point in time, you don't have that, like it's far, far closer to the uncanny valley than things that we would be used to today. What'd you think of the music? Oh, I loved it. The uh, the first song about the woman's laundry, I thought was going in a very, or her, her bathing suit, 
I thought was going in a, a very different direction, and they're still sort of sliding stuff past the radar, but it did something really great because there's... I mean, if you're especially if you're growing up in a, a tighter, lower-income situation, your sense of humor is going to be significantly more blue, typically. More macabre. Macabre, but also just... You're going to hear more inappropriate stuff. I should say stuff that traditional people might find offensive or things like that. That kind of comedy that you would have seen coming out of the Waynes family if they'd grown up in an upper class situation. A lot of that is stuff that is survived and lived through. And you see shades of that with Emmett and his ma in that first song. And it's it does such a good job of establishing character for both them as individuals and their dynamic between each other. And it is like a very bright and supportive relationship, but they're used to doing without. And so they make their own fun by singing maybe tawdry songs. Like you said before, I don't necessarily think the Kermit the Frog opening is essential. You know, we meet Kermit, he's on a bike. We've seen that before. And he's just going to introduce us. But he does run into our antagonists very at the very beginning, kind of in this little prologue. He runs into the Riverbottom Boys. Look, it's a frog! Nah, that's a toad. Frogs ain't that ugly, right, Chuck? I know. Wait a second, you guys. Hey, Chuck, oh, you see anything you like? How about the scarf? You got it! Uh, uh, that was a bunch known as the river bottom gang and uh unfortunately you're going to be seeing more of them too i'd read it a long time ago but i reread the book this week the river bottom night they're actually called river it's river bend in the book not river bottom they're not in the book at all until the very end they are not the antagonists of the story that was a creation by jerry jewel before we talk about them, let me read to you the actual description of the gang in the book. We're from Riverbend, said the woodchuck. Pete, Squirrel, and Jimmy Possum on the electric guitar. Herman, Fats, Porcupine on electric bass. Jethro, Gideon, and Amos, Mouse on the electric organ. Henry, Jellohead, Woodchuck on drums. Mary Jane, Chipmunk doing the vocals. And Fred Rabbit working the lights. That does not sound like the Nightmare Van from this movie. Kermit meets, you know, and we'll start off, we'll talk about the Riverbottom Boys, because we meet them right off the bat. They are kind of like an even meaner version of the Electric Mayhem. Yeah, I would say that. They are the most famous thing to come out of this special. The biggest cultural touchstone from this special. There was like a slight, I'm not going to call it a trigger because I was fine, but on the list of horror movies that I saw at way too young an age, there's this movie called Demonic Toys. It came out in late 80s, early 90s. And I remember there being a killer bear. And so every time that character was on screen, I was just hearing like, is he about to bite someone? Chuck's kind of scary. Yeah, he's a little bit. I think Frank's having a blast with them, though. Mm -hmm. We meet the Riverbottom boys. They're just bullies. They're our antagonists, and they steal Kermit's scarf. They come up in their jalopy, right? That's the first remote-controlled shot we really get in the thing, right, is them driving that car. Mm -hmm. The version we watched has narration. The more the ones that are available now in streaming or on Blu-ray doesn't have the Kermit narration. I've watched both. I don't think it hurts or harms it either way. Our story begins on a chilly day in late autumn. Emmett Otter and his ma were headed up the river, rolling and singing. I really think it was a utilitarian choice for them to try to appeal to a wider audience. Yeah. People love Kermit, so just throw Kermit in there. And This was shot in the hiatus mm -hmm. between Muppet Show Season 1 and 2, so why not lead off? You know, it still goes back to Tales from Muppet Land, right, where Kermit often did this exact same thing. I feel like he was more active in all of those, though. Sure, basically playing the same role. And then we are introduced to Emmett and Alice Otter on the river singing... Oh, but elegant 
as any on the shore. She was known for her generous silhouette and yet she was known even more for the bathing suit she wore. This is one of two songs in the movie that are actually listed in the book as songs that they sing to each other. Interesting. Paul Williams had to figure out, like, he was looking through the book and he was like, well, that's an interesting name for a song. What is that about? And he came up with this beautiful song about their grandmother who had such a big bathing suit that right after she passed away, all the things they could make with it. It is a wonderful way to introduce our characters. Now, of course, Jerry Nelson is playing Emmett Otter. Jerry had, you know, he's been with the Muppets for a while, but remember he was part-time there for a little bit. And then when the Muppet show started, he was unable to join them for the first, like, I think three or four or five episodes. When you look at that first season, everybody got kind of a lead character, except for Jerry. He ended up playing a lot of smaller characters, and there was actually a little bit of a, I'm not going to say resentment, he was a little bummed by that, I think. Emmett Otter puts him front and center, obviously. He actually almost kind of looks like Jerry Nelson. I know Emmett's designed to look like the illustrations, the Lillian Hoban illustrations. He looks a little like Jerry Nelson. It's very sweet. Alice, his mother, is played by Frank Oz, but isn't. She's puppeteered by Frank Oz, but her voice is by a woman named Marilyn Sokol. I'm going to talk about her for a second because she's kind of the biggest new name that we're getting out of this, right? Marilyn Sokol's from Brooklyn. She did some voices in The Great Santa Claus Switch, which is how she met Henson. Actually, back then when they did that, they tried her out as a puppeteer. She she did some puppetry for them and she was just awful at it, self-admittedly awful at it. I came in, it was a workshop and uh, yeah, I auditioned, I tried putting on a, a Muppet. I was not as proficient as others, but um, I was funny. I was funny and Jim liked my voice. But that particular workshop led to the great Santa Claus switch. So um, I believe that was the first thing I, that I did with the Muppets with Jim. So I did uh, the great Santa Claus switch and I did both, you know. I did both the voice and the manipulation. But even just talking, I, can't, I have lousy hand-eye coordination. To look at a monitor, everyone else, you know, Franny Brill, Jerry Nelson, but I was lousy. So they kept me in the recording booth after that when I did things for Sesame Street. <laughs> Before this was shot, they went in and they recorded all the music. And then on the set, whenever there was a song, Frank would lip sync with Ma to the song. But then when there was dialogue, Frank would do the performance. And then after it was done shooting, then Marilyn would go in and then she would loop over Frank's lines with her voice. And we'll get to the point where I think that's very important because obviously we know Frank can do a bunch of voices. Frank plays Miss Piggy. He can do female voices, but I think her voice um, is very important to the success of this special. She began her career actually as a belly dancer in the 1966 national production of Man in La Mancha. Um, she won an Obie Award for a performance in an opera. Um, as an actor, she has parts in The Goodbye Girl, Foul Play, Crocodile Dundee 2. Eh? Crocodile Dundee 2. There was a sequel. There were two sequels. The Basketball Diaries, The Man on the Moon, uh, the 2005 version of The Producers. And she also ended up doing 45 episodes of Sesame Street between 1972 and 1997, playing various characters, including Aunt May, the camp director, Kathleen the Cow, and on more than one occasion, a loaf of bread. Several different credits as a loaf of bread. She's 84 today and still working. So they're rowing along and singing. And this is your first impression of the world, though, right? It's a nice. I, you're gonna know the. You're gonna know the terminology for this kind of thing better than I do. 
you've got that sort of shot that's just panning through that entire setting. And I think that's when I got that first really strong storyteller feel because yeah. the sky is so gray. It's it's almost like it's through a filter. Yeah, it's like Kermit riding the bicycle and, and, and stuff. You know, you want to start off people with kind of a wow moment. I think the opening is a wow moment for multiple reasons. One, the song is is lovely, but also the technical aspect of who who who's where's the puppeteer? <laughs> you know, while they're rowing this boat, but also introducing you to the world, to these sets they've built. But it gives you this pastoral feel. You, you immediately understand the world you're in, not just visually, but also with the music. You know, and like you said, it also very much establishes the relationship between them. It's almost just the way they harmonize together. And the call and response, there's one of the things that marks their relationship is that degree of give and take. Now she has gone. Now she has left us. Left with sweet memories. And left with something more. We've made curtains. And handkerchiefs. And clothing for the from the one bathing suit that your grandma Otter wore. From the one bathing suit that your grandma Otter wore. What Emmett and Ma are out doing, though, is they're delivering the laundry. That's how uh, Alice makes money for the family, is she does laundry for rich people. The first of which we meet is, of course, Gretchen Fox, who's played by Aaron Oscar, the, the wife of the mayor, we find out later. Well, it's about time you got here. Same time we always get here. Yes, you're late every week. And last week, when I opened the laundry parcel, there was a scorch mark on one of the sheets. Oh, uh, well, maybe I can knock off a little bit on the price. I, uh... You certainly shall. Remind me of that when I pay you next week. Ta. Well, I got the bill right here. Here, and since it's three days till Christmas, I'd really appreciate it if you'd fall off the dock. So Emmett's father is dead. That's a big part of the story. You know, the father's shadow is kind of hanging actually over the whole thing. All the decisions they make and everything, uh, the, the whole thing is trying to kind of honor his spirit. Frogtown Hollow is kind of the suburbs. Or actually, it's not even the suburbs. It's like the sticks outside of this place called Waterville. That's the big town. We go to Waterville and we meet our, our friends, the Nightmare, again. They're in this uh, really loud, obnoxious car. But it's got one of my favorite moments of the whole special is when they grind to a halt because the snake is choking <laughs> the bear. Hey, what'd you do that for? Hey, boss. Me and Chuck's going to lunch. We don't want to stop. I Chuck. Neck. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a music store over there, and Snake needs a new string for his guitar. Mm -hmm. Get off my shoulder. Uh, I'm going, I'm going. Jeez, the father should be grateful he's got shoulders. You get a real sense of, like, the dynamic. Do you know what the... Have you ever seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. The weasel's a lot like the weasels from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I can see that. Look, Valiant, we got a reliable tip-off. The rabbit was here, and was corrugated by several otters. I also think it's interesting the weasel, who is probably the most unpleasant of all of the Riverbottom boys, is played by Jerry Nelson, who also is playing Emmett, like the sweetest character in the thing. Uh, Cheryl Henson talks a lot about how, and, and actually Cheryl Henson and Paul Williams both said that they think that like... There was the Riverbottom Nightmare Band, which I do think was my father's favorite part. He really loved, you know, having a good rock band, good local homeboy rock band going through this really sweet world and that that he loved that band 
I think there's some little piece of Jim Henson's soul and perhaps mine that would have that wanted to be in the band White Snake, <laughs> just just wanted to to be an Aerosmith or just uh, just nasty rock and roll. There's no redeeming qualities to these people other than I guess the fact that they're high quality musicians. We'll find out. This was Dave Gold's like you know yeah he had you know he had come off his first season of the Muppet Show, but this was the first non Muppet Show thing Dave Gold's had performed on. And he still worked on the puppets. He was still working in the workshop for this as well. And he plays the fish who I love how they I love how they keep trying to come up with ways to keep the fish in the scenes. Mm-hmm. So Emmett and his mom come into town, do some errands. You know, they, they run out of cash very quickly. We're, it's very clear. You know, we're, they made it very clear that these are that these are poor folk. Mom doesn't even want to talk about Christmas, right? Because it just makes her sad. In the book, it keeps coming back to this thing where everyone's like, well, it's it's a bad year for Christmas this year. And both Emmett and Ma are like, some year's got to be a good year. If you keep telling me this is a bad year, when's the good year going to happen? And that's kind of what this story is, is they're like, no, this is going to be the good year. The moral of it is interesting. And I, I'm I'm jumping ahead by, by bringing that up, but I do want to make sure I come back to it. And then uh, the Riverbottom Boys crash the, the music store. Emmett sees his uh, the guitar that he really likes. A little, per- like, they just got done talking about how, how little money they had. And they go to the store and he sees his fancy guitar. He's like, that swell guitar. Mother of pearl inlays, too. Now, Ma, that's what you can get me for Christmas. Dude, read the room. He is a kid. <laughs> he is. He is. He's a very aware kid. He gets what's going on. Oh, sure. After all, it's uh, only $40. We're going to talk later about the music, the scene at the music uh, store with the Riverbottom gang, because it leads to the Emmett Otter outtake reel, which is one of my favorite Muppet things that has ever been made. I, I did point out when they're walking around town, you can definitely tell they're marionettes. Right. Oh, There's yeah. a couple of very obvious marionette shots. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's also, it's kind of part of the charm. There's no part of me that believes it, but I still believe it. I, I let myself believe it. Today, they would do it with CG. I hope I'm not off base in saying this, but I feel like if you've made it far enough to, in, to actually see the marionettes, you've got a good idea of what you're in for. Then Emmett and his Ma row home and we get our second song. Head full of good thoughts, belly full of grub, money in your pocket when there ain't no hole in the wash tub. Sweetest honeysuckle on the vine, Ma. Your nails won't break and your toes won't stub. You never get a fever when there ain't no hole in the wash tub. This is a fun song, but it's also, once you know the whole story, it's kind of ominous. It's setting up kind of the central dilemma of the entire thing without really knowing it, right? It's just, as, as what's, what's the mom call it? It's a good... Uh, That's what you call your basic keeping warm while you're rolling home kind of song. Now, did you know... Did How much did you know about the story when you started this? Very little. Okay. Um, I knew it was a Christmas-themed story. I knew through the presence of a jug band that we would be dealing with mostly blue-collar folks, but outside of that, not very much. Okay, so you didn't know about the kind of Gift of the Magi switch on the present thing? Not at all. Ain't No Hole the Wash Tub is kind of like what? It's their... It's kind of, they kind of make it into an idiom of like, you know, things could be worse, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Things suck, but things could be worse. It's a fun song. While they're rowing home, we get to meet Doc Bullfrog, who owns the Riverside Rest. There go two of the nicest folk on the river. The lighting you, you mentioned, especially for this scene, they actually had a huge lighting rig set up to simulate the movement of the sun across the sky. It was on a timer. So when they were shooting a scene like this, they could put it on the timer, match it up to the song. And so that every time they shot it, no matter the angle, no matter the close up, 
you know, uh, whatever sh the setup was for the shot, the lighting would still match the time of day they were in. And it ends with a really beautiful sunrise shot or sunset shot um, with that stork or pelican in the foreground. That is, now that you mention it, I do feel like, and it, it was definitely a nice touch, but we saw a lot of birds just randomly. There's a lot of secondary animals. You have your leads, uh, your anthropomorphic animals, but you also have more realistic animals. There's a lot of ducks, there's a lot of birds, you know, I mean, they were trying to create, you know, I said they were building a world. There's a lot of care going into creating a, a world that's full of life, not just our, our main characters. Uh, like I said, I think Ain't No Hole in the Washtub is probably the most pivotal song in it, just because it it's weird. It delivers us the premise of the show before we know the premise of the show. So that Kermit's narration comes in a little bit again. One morning, Frogtown Hollow woke to discover winter had arrived, with ice on the river and snow in the fields. Emmett did his chores, not knowing that it would be a very special day. Not in modern versions. Emmett gets up to go meet his buddy Wendell. Uh, Wendell is a porcupine. He's played by Dave Goles. He was a raccoon in the book, but he's a porcupine. If you look at him, you see, you notice how he had all his quills sticking out of his, like, sweater? Yeah. Uh, those are all real por porcupine quills. Interesting. In order to get that look, they got some real porcupine quills and had them kind of sticking out. Just wonder how, how often they got caught on those quills. I love Wendell. I think he's a fun character. He's a dimwit in that very sweet kind of way. Oh, let's see. Um, half of 50 cents. Half of 50 cents. I was almost positive that was going to be uh, a Tom Sawyer whitewashing the fence kind of scenario. None of these people are as mean as Tom Sawyer. <laughs> Tom Sawyer's an asshole. Yeah. And uh, Wendell tells Emmett that we got a job fixing a fence. And, and this, again, this is more setup, right? But he needs. he's like, cool, I'll go get my father's old tool chest. Because, you know, that's what I use for my odd jobs. So we're, we're, we've already established the wash tub. Now we're establishing the tool chest as two things that make them money. The only two things, really, that make them money. At the same time, he runs out with Wendell oh, to do the job. Or he comes in and Hetty Muskrat, who is his uh, mom's best friend, also played by Aaron Oscar. He comes in and gets it and he runs out. And basically all this is is a setup to get Wendell and Emmett together and Hetty and Alice together so that they can be informed about the talent contest. Well, Emmett, are you going to enter? Enter what? The contest. I don't know about any contest. Golly, it's a talent contest at the town hall on Christmas Eve. No kidding. And first prize is $50. We're, we're getting to the inciting incident, but we're, yeah. we're not fully underway yet. And he does sort of seem to slide into a leadership position for the jug band just by default mostly because he seems like the smartest person there he's just a sweet character yeah like and, and i don't think that goes away mm -hmm. the muppets are you know we just we're just coming off the first season of the muppet show i wouldn't call them sweet some of them are i think paul williams in the documentary said that like he thinks this was the very first time that jim really leaned into the sentiment of what they were doing, which is kind of true. This is far more sentimental than any of their other specials before this. Far more earnest. Yeah, that, that tracks, because there's never a, a Dark Knight of the Soul aspect to Emmett or his mom's thing. Anything that comes up, whether it's them losing their livelihood on a gamble simultaneously, it just seems to roll off their back. It always snaps immediately to, well, I guess we'll figure out what we do next, but there's never any casting of blame. There's no... There aren't any strong words um, or arguments or anything like that. It's just this 
sort of rolling blanket acceptance of circumstance and each other that's... There's some bullies, and then there's two hard decisions that your characters have to make. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much all the conflict. Emmett and his mother find out at the same time that there's a talent contest. The prize is $50. Emmett's friends, Wendell, Harvey, and Charlie, uh, tell him that they're forming a jug band. You know about the Waterville talent contest? Sure, everybody's heard of that. Right, Emmett? Well, you see, Charlie and me were just talking about what we should do is organize a jug band. Yeah, wouldn't that be swell? Mm -hmm. See, I play kazoo and washboard, and Charlie here plays a good cigar box banjo. I really do, uh, my ma says. Mm -hmm. So all we need is a couple of other guys to fill out the band. Well, how come us? Well, you see, you can blow a jug, Wendell. Yeah. Hey, this is a good idea, Emmett. Maybe. What would I play? What else? You get to play wash tub bass. Why me? Well, because your ma's got the wash tub. Oh, no, forget it. Uh, count me out. I'm not in your band. That's final. Oh, uh, come on. Why not, Emmett? Because to make a wash tub bass, you have to put a hole in the wash tub. Actually, to be fair, he does have his refusal. <laughs> what does Campbell call it? Yeah, the refusal of the call. But the, and that is an interesting thing because so dad is a snake oil salesman. I am 90, not 90, I'm going to say I'm 60% sure that that wasn't a dirty reference, but... I think he was literally selling snake oil. I believe it, but they're just, that bit about no one wanting to oil the snake, I was like, you guys are clever, good job. Pa used to say, a person's got to take some chances or life will never come to nothing. He took his chances on snake oil. Fact that it didn't come to much hardly matters. You know, his catchphrases, his songs he would sing. Absolutely. It's their way of keeping him alive. And that's that's where they hit that crux decision where I guess I'm going to put a hole in this washboard and I'm going to sell my son's tools. Neither of them ask the other's permission for it. No, because they want to surprise him. It's a holiday movie. Everything works out for the best. But I'm just I'm thinking about this like so if they lose that that competition, they aren't going to eat. Yeah. One thing that they kind of stress is that they're both doing what they think Pa would have done. And he was a risk taker who who sold snake oil and who died poor. Yeah, as I was say, he died and left them <laughs> destitute. So, like, if we're looking at role, I'm sure he was a lovely otter. I'm sure he was a real <laughs> sweet man. But yes. if we're barely scraping by and we don't have savings. I'm not saying that I would have done what they do uh, unless I knew I was in a Christmas special. If I knew I was in a <laughs> Christmas special. If you look down to your right and you see that Hallmark logo, you'll be all right. So Emmett at first refuses. He says, I'm not going to join your, your thing. I'm not going to put a hole in my mom's wash tub. Hell, we just sang a song about it yesterday. And then the mom says, well, I couldn't possibly compete in the contest. I don't have anything to wear. So this leads to this dilemma. of How are they going to pay for the presents for the other person, right? Emmett wants to get his mother a piano or put a down payment on one. And Alice wants to buy Emmett that guitar. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to make it happen. My least favorite part, I'll, I'll lay some criticism. They're watching it several times. I don't like the parts where they're, th where they're thinking to themselves, like laying out what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of internal monologue that they give them. I actually think it's unnecessary. But if I do enter, I gotta have a costume. And to buy a costume, I'd have to hock something. Hm. Nothing left to hock. Of course, there's Pa's old tool chest. But Emmett uses that for odd jobs. I think more than anything, except maybe Sesame Street, this might have been Jim aiming at kids more directly. I don't know that he's necessarily talking down to them in that context, but it is good to sort of scaffold a decision-making process if kids are your audience. 
it's helpful for everyone to be on the same page, especially if you have people that don't have the longest attention spans. Man, I bet if you just got rid of the voiceover and cut the sequence down a little bit, you could tell what they were thinking. As long as you set up enough, you could probably tell. But you're right, that might be too subtle. We would make a good jug band, but to put a hole in Ma's wash tub, nothing would make her happier than having a good old piano again. They both come up with something something awful, right? Emmett is, is going like, well, I could put a hole in her wash tub. And mom's thinking, I could hawk the dad's tool chest, which is what Emmett uses for his odd jobs, to pay for fabric to make a dress. And they're both weighing these decisions. Emmett comes home with the uh, Christmas branch. Well, after all, tomorrow's Christmas Eve, and even if we don't have presents, at least we can have the branch. It's a nice one, Emmett. Just like Pa used to bring home. Yep. Every year he'd go out vowing he was going to bring home a real whole Christmas tree. <laughs> but he never had the heart to do it. And every year he'd say, because I didn't cut it down, the rest of that tree will still be alive in a hundred years. <laughs> you know, sometimes you even sound like your pa. And then we get a, a fun sequence that's different in the book where uh, Emmett asks if they can use Pa's old slide. This is where we clearly see some marionette work. <laughs> yes, but there's also something, like, it seems like it's built into the landscape. The way that Emmett phrased the question was like, am I finally old enough to do this now? Can I do this now? And I'm like... Actually, I think what they're saying is, is the river frozen enough? Uh, I think in the summer, it's a water slide. In the winter, once the river is solid, then it becomes kind of this ice slide. I, but I, I love the moment when the mom's like... Race you to her! Because there's a, a, a really kind of heartbreaking moment, though, when they're... There after they do the slide a few times, and Emmett says that's like the best thing I ever built. <laughs> yeah, he may not have left us much, but that old slide is just about enough. Gee, I think he left us a lot. Well, he left what he could. Hmm. And I think that's one of the most adult moments in the in the special. There is, and also like Ma Otter as a role model is interesting because there's this a lot of times when you'll hear people talk about acceptance or ostensibly settling it's always with a tinge of like that negative emotion or potentially even despair what ma has isn't without that despair but it's significantly more resilient than i tend to hear when i hear people talking about something like acceptance of circumstance or things like that we don't know how long ago pa died gotta be fairly recently and it's not that old right ma remember pa's favorite song hmm. when the mountain Touches the valley, all the clouds are taught to fly. Thus our souls shall leave this land most peacefully. The second song that was mentioned in the book, actually, in the book it was called Downstream, Where the River Meets the Sea, and the Paul Williams version is just When the River Meets the Sea. This is where I think Marion Sokol is essential. Meets the sea Like a flower that has blossomed I can imagine Frank Oz singing The Bathing Suit Grandma Otter War. I can imagine Frank Oz singing Ain't No Hole in the Wash Tub. I think Frank singing this, best I can call it, is like a non-denominational hymnal. Mm. I don't think Frank singing this would have been nearly as powerful. That's where I think her contribution really comes in, because she was a singer, she had a great voice. I think you really needed someone who could belt out these songs. And this is where I think she really earns her pay. Meet the 
patience, my brothers, and patience, my sons. I will admit, as much as I love this song, this is when my four-year-old went up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> she said this was an acceptable loss. Like a baby when it is sleeping in its loving mother's arms. What a newborn baby dreams is a mystery. Isn't really a, a there's there's not really a, a, a an answer in that lyric of, about life, but there's an an awe for the, the mystery of it. We'll find a purpose, and in time he'll understand. It's like a spiritual, you know, and um, so there's an obligation that one feels, you know, to rendering this in a simple way without being self-indulgent, because it's very touching. We get up the next day and, and is Emmett that oblivious that he doesn't see the note on the counter? I'm going to say yes. I'm, I'm going to say in terms of the way that that was framed, he was probably super keyed up and thinking about punching a hole in that washboard and, or that wash basin. And yeah, he's kind of freaked out. So Emmett leaves a note. Dear Ma, I'll be gone all day. I'll explain about the wash tub when I see you late tonight. Love, Emmett. And then right next to it was a note from his mom saying, Dear Emmett, I'll be home late tonight. And I'll explain about the tool chest when I see you. Love, Ma. Then we get a moment that is like a dagger to my heart, which is when Emmett puts the hole in that wash tub. Ever since I was a kid, that very moment where he takes that nail in Nelson's performance is really good. He's tentative. It's a silent performance. There's no dialogue. Uh, I just think Nelson just nails it. That moment where he hits the, he has the nail and he hits it with a board, even though it looks kind of silly because it looks like the nail bends. <laughs> Because it's not real, a real nail. I just have always felt that moment. Like it was kind of a heavy, like that, the sound. That's your Rubicon, mm. your point of no return. And then we also know the mom's going to go off. And we, we don't actually see her hawking the tool chest. That's done off screen. But now we get our next song. Um, we get to the clubhouse that Emma and his friends have, and we get barbecue. <laughs> This one probably more than anything else that we'll, we'll hear in the special hit me sort of like the uh, Ugalala Jubilee Jug Band. In this, they're called the Frog Hollow Jubilee Jug Band. Mm -hmm. The book doesn't call them that. They added that, I guess, to make the Muppet Show connection. But yes, it's very similar to a song you would hear them sing on the Muppet Show. Listen, every time we talk about a song on here, and if we praise it, understand that we're talking about Paul Williams, <laughs> <laughs> who just kills it. Yeah, he's great. And he even admits, like, not all of this is his style. He's not a country musician. And that's a really great performance moment with all of them in that thing. Nelson said it was one of the hardest scenes to do, actually, because he's having to... He's puppeteering Emmett, but he's also controlling the bass. 
and he says it was really hard to get the coordination down. With, I feel like when we when we see the Electric Mayhem play, we'll usually see them manipulate the instruments, don't we? It depends. Like sometimes, like I mean, with a guitar, they're just kind of hanging there, right? And they're holding them, but they're but they're probably attached to the hand. But I, I don't know exactly how it works. But this, it was like because it was running up through the bottom of the clubhouse. It's it's a fun number that we're we're gonna hear again later. Why do you think Jim didn't? give himself credit as a performer. The nearest guess I have is that I don't think he was trying to distance himself from the Muppet show, but he never wanted to have that be the one note thing. And so this is clearly a Henson production, but it almost seems like he's he's boosting someone else's signal, sort of like he would do with uh, Fraggle Rock later on. I mean, he directed it. It's it's clearly, it's got Kermit in it, but like, it's just weird. Maybe he thinks it's overkill to have his name so many times in the credits. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, or just wants to throw the focus on Jerry and, and Frank. And uh, yeah, so Barbecue is a fun song. And this is a song, of course, that they're going to perform for the talent show. They're going to split the prize money $12.50 a piece, which Emmett seems to think he can use for a down payment on a piano. To be fair, his arithmetic might not be that strong. Although the prices might be pretty low. I mean, a guitar like that would probably cost you more than 40 bucks today. And uh, while they're performing, uh, Alice is over at her friend Hetty's house sewing her dress that she has got the fabric for by hawking the tool chest. Hetty, who's the one who told her about the contest, is kind of like, I still can't believe it. You actually took that tool chest and hawked it to buy dress fabric. I had to. I got to wear something for the contest, don't I? Besides, when I win, I'll have enough money to unhock it. What if you don't win? I was like, you started this. You're the one that gave her the idea. But her, I, I noticed her and Emmett have the same response, right? Whenever someone says, well, what if we don't win? They just go, we got gotta to win. win. That's kind of their mantra. I don't have a choice but to win. Gotta win. I put a hole in the wash tub. We gotta win. I just, I feel like any different story that takes a much darker turn. It's like, no, no, we can't lose. Then we go back to the clubhouse and we get another appearance by the Riverbottom gang. Even their snowmobiles are hoopties. <laughs> loud, obnoxious things that are billowing smoke. This is, of course, more radio control stuff from Foz. And again, the fish <laughs> being dragged behind one of them. And there's just a little exchange. Look at the birds up in the trees. Yeah? Well, we're not birds. We're a junk band. Yeah, practicing for the talent contest. Oh, you they're gonna win the talent contest, right, boss? <laughs> <laughs> What was that all about? And then uh, we get a little Kermit narration that lets us know. And so the evening came for the talent contest. They've made their fateful choices. They've sold the toolbox. They put the hole in the wash tub. And now it's time for the contest. So we meet Mayor Fox, one of my favorite gym archetypes. Snooty Henson. <laughs> he sounds like uh, Link Hogthrob. He doesn't seem antagonistic, though. His wife is more directly antagonistic. Oh, she's awful. Yeah, she's... But no, he seems... The, 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 no, the mayor seems all right. But he's got that erudite feel to him, you know? I mean, he's from Waterville, which is the city, and Emmett and his mom are from Frogtown Holler, which is obviously the sticks. Drinkable water, non-drinkable water. The, in the book, it says, like, they don't... In, in, like, Waterville, they have electricity, but in Frogtown Hollow, they don't. So there's definitely a class thing going on with this a little bit because if you notice like all the judges are fairly well-off people and uh they're kind of coming into the big city which i think is why she feels the need to like sew herself a fancy dress you want to put that best foot forward well there is an argument to be made that she could have done this without selling the tools true but i'm also looking at it for like for them to be going the way they are they've got 
a routine and they've got a worldview that they're going to take for granted and propriety is going to hold a lot of sway in that context. She absolutely could have gone up there without getting a new dress, but did she know that? And to be fair, like, you know, Gretchen Fox is over there on the, is one of the judges. So, you know, mm-hmm. Gretchen's going to care about what the way she's dressed. We're going to talk about Gretchen Fox and why one of my problems with the story is the fact that Gretchen Fox apparently is into metal. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out who, well, when we get to it, but I, I'm just trying to figure out which one of them, how all three of them were down with the heavy metal song. Pardon me, uh, is this the uh, talent contest? Uh, yes, it is. Your dressing room is right over there. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm very nice to have helped you. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm very nice. You Excuse me. You're terribly nervous. So uh, we get into the contest and there's some, you know, rigmarole backstage. Now there's a lot of little pieces of people performing. There's a song that they recorded called Born in a Trunk that is not in the special that you can find on the Blu-rays and stuff as a, as a, as a bonus feature. I was born in the trunk of a great oak tree that they used to build a stage at the palace. It was never a full song, but it was a song that Williams wrote, and it's actually sung by Marion Sokol, but it wasn't a Ma song. It was actually a song by the woman, like the ferret who ran the music store. Mm. She was originally in the contest, and um, she sang a song. But then there's also little pieces of all the chaos backstage. And of course, the tension of this is Ma and Emma don't know that they're doing this. They don't know that the other is part of the contest. Then we get a character named uh, Yancey Woodchuck, also played by Jerry Nelson, who comes out and sings. When you meet somebody that don't like soul food, they still got a soul. And it don't be that you got no rhythm if you don't like rock and roll completely C-blocking the voice. I, I think it's funny because Nelson does the voice on it. He gives him a real goofy voice. And the boys are mortified. We can't do the song after he's done it. People will think we're copying. They decide, let's go outside and practice. And they go out and they write a brand new song. <laughs> I wonder if Paul Williams is looking at it going, like, that took me weeks. <laughs> Tell me these four critters went out back and wrote this song. And we're going to talk about brother and our brothers in our world because there's actually a very cool relationship between the two songs. The first to perform of our leads in the talent contest is Alice, and she comes out in her nice dress, and she sings a song that the fox calls, uh, says a, a traditional song of the river. It's a song called Our World. We're closer now than ever before. There's love in our world, and we're showing it more. This is the other song I think that you needed uh, Sokol for and not Frank. I definitely agree with that one. I mean, she's an actual like trained singer. She approaches it with the right level. Of, I, I think that if Frank was singing these songs, there would be a hint of cynicism or irony or whatever you want to call it, no matter what, just by default. I think Frank Oz is talented beyond measure, but I don't think this kind of performance, especially playing a woman in that case, would be one of his strengths, specifically because this is sort of her clincher song. Yeah. This is the thing that's supposed to bring everything home. This is something that, in Emmett's case, he wants to keep practicing to make sure the band's tight. You never sense a lack of confidence from Ma Otter. There's a kind of gravity that she brings to it that Frank 
can bring to different roles, but I don't think he would have been able to bring to this one. Yeah, and I think they recognized that. It wasn't like they after when they were done, they went back and redubbed Frank. They knew this was the plan ahead of time. When they're shooting that scene, Frank is lip syncing to Marilyn's track already. Frank knows that all of his dialogue is going to be replaced later. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's not like a David Prowse Darth Vader thing where he le- really thought they were going to use his voice for Darth Vader. I didn't know that. That's depressing. I don't know. I don't know if he found out till the premiere. Maybe. Oh, that's rough. Uh, you can find footage of David Prowse's voice coming out of Darth Vader in scenes. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic. You mission. are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away. But I think Alice does a great job. Like you said, I think she just thinks she can win because she can just sing. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing flashy about it. It's very plain and uh, very, very beautiful. Uh, and there's a great line out back when they when the boys see that that she's uh, performing. And Emma's like, it's Ma. And Wendell's like, yeah, and she's better than we are. <laughs> So the crowd in the theater, kind of like the, kind of like what would happen on the Muppet Show, is just full of rejects. You have some characters, but like on the Muppet Show, the audience eventually you're going to see characters that you know, like like Menomino and stuff, end up being like part of the audience because there's no other use for them anymore. And the audience for this, they're trying to pack this thing. And the- I was in charge of doing the audience, and I honestly don't remember how many audience members there were, but there were a lot. And we basically took um, sort of. When you're making a puppet, you end up making two or three sort of mock-ups. So a lot of the mock-ups were made into audience members. Um, If there was a pattern that we didn't use, we made it in five different kinds of fur and then trimmed it different ways so that they were all, you know, they were all furry woodland creatures. We were filling up the audience with all sorts of uh, miscellaneous bodies and pieces and parts and would put them together and put a hat on them and then they'd look fine. She gets a pretty warm response. Now the the panel, the the judges are, like we said, Gretchen Fox, who's the mayor's wife, but who we saw be very mean to Alice. Doc Bullfrog, who seems who seems like he's like the richest guy in town. He's got that vibe, right? He owns the Riverside Rest, which is kind of the 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 hot night spot there, restaurant and bar and, and then James Badger, who I don't think is a character at all is the other person in the thing. So then the boys sing, and, and they've been out in the alleyway practicing a new song because they can't do barbecue, and they sing a song called Brothers. How much alike we are Perhaps we're long-lost brothers We even think the same You know there may be others they're introduced as the Frogtown Hollow Jubilee Jug Band. So Brothers is probably my least favorite song. It's fine. It gets better later. I think that's that's kind of the key to it, too, is the way, with the exception of Alice, everyone else we've seen participate in the talent show. Pretty low bar. Yeah, super low bar. <laughs> and so yeah. one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting, and they, they did it a couple of times throughout this part of the, the special, they keep dangling that carrot, like... Emmett and the others are going up last, so clearly they should probably win. If they don't, Alice does, right? Right, dramatically, that's how you would expect it to play out. Of a lifetime of surprise We'll all become magicians And leave the wonder in their eyes But we get that last minute sub, which doesn't feel cheap because we've seen the the River Bottom Nightmare Band multiple times throughout the special. So I think, is this the fourth time we see them? Yeah, I mean, we meet them in the prologue. 
And then there's the time at the music store. And then there's the time where they bug them at the at the treehouse. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is like the fourth time we see them. I barely count the prologue. I, I would call this that rule of three moment where you see that delivery on it. So they sing their act and, uh, you know, they come backstage and they and they, they run into each other. You know, Alice and Emmett finally discover that they're there, obviously. And Emmett's like, I think you're going to win. And she's like, I think you guys are going to win. And then the mayor comes out and changes the f***ing rules. Sorry. The mayor comes out and changes the damn rules. <laughs> Look, if Bruce Wayne has taught us anything, money is the best superpower. And he comes out and says, normally... We wouldn't allow any last-minute entries, but these kids have come a long way... All the way from Riverbottom. Yes, these Riverbottom boys... Come on, let's clear it away there, huh? Come on, clear it out. What they've done is put together a genuine... Yeah, that's good. So let's welcome, please, tonight's last contestants. Here they are, the rock group known as the Nightmare. These sweet boys, these sweet young boys came all the way from Riverbottom. I feel like somebody blackmailed the mayor. And they formed a rock band. They caught him at the Dutch Laundry. And backstage while he's announcing them, like the Riverbottom boys are literally like pushing our heroes out of the way while they're moving in their equipment. And he introduces, now the name of the band is just The Nightmare, um, which is the same as in the book. And we get what is, I think, without a doubt, the most famous and um, longest resonating, the, the thing that has penetrated the pop culture zeitgeist the most from this special, which is the Riverbottom Nightmare Band number. We think what we want. We do anything that we wish. We got no respect for animal birdie or fish. Well, first of all, Chuck, the lead bear, is dressed like Elton John, <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. Frank probably did, too. <laughs> He's got the cape and like the, it's it's insane. And they come out and they play what can only be called a metal song, right? Mm-hmm. We know we're a mess. You know, Chuck is dressed like Elton John. The fish doesn't do a thing. He just swims in a bowl. I mean, he's there for moral support. He's he's helping them keep time. He's their metronome. What I thought was great is I thought they actually had a fairly realistic depiction of how a snake would play a guitar. If you watch the way he's the snake is wound around the guitar, mm-hmm. like he uses the tip of his tail to uh, to strum, and then he's got the middle of his body going up and down on the frets. Of course, my daughter, who is uh, taking guitar lessons, is like, that's not a chord. <laughs> she was very critical of his guitar playing. As she should be. This scene reminds me, I, was, I had a flashback watching it today. Because I, I remember as a kid, this scene kind of scared me a little bit. They are very kind of, for a show that is so gentle, these guys come out and they sing a song of just about being evil. <laughs> we laugh in your face. All we practice our growl and our sneer. We break our place. We are dangerous when we are near. If you think about it, that is pretty good pop sensibility. The first time I ever heard Metallica, I was seventh grade in Ohio and our junior high had a talent show and I did participate, but the eighth grade kids, you know, four of them had a band and they complete with a bell and a smoke machine did For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica. Really?
This would have been 1989. In eighth grade? I'm not saying they were good at it. I have no idea. Because I had never heard Metallica before. I had never heard true heavy metal before. I had heard glam rock, poison and stuff, right? But there was something about this song. And, you know, it's a very ominous song. And it's inspired by a very, you know, dark book one of my favorite books actually I, I always remember that moment as being like a moment was like oh should I be listening it felt transgressive in the moment and I feel like the river bottom nightmare band was that for when I was even younger my favorite two lines are the the grass does not grow on the places where we stop and stand and then also we don't wish to learn but we hate what we don't understand so good there's such a great degree of self-awareness there too it is true it is true I wonder how Chuck voted in 2020 if you mention Emmett Otter to most people, this will be probably the first thing that comes to their mind. T-shirts, things like that, like the Riverbottom Nightmare Band. So you hadn't seen this before. So were you expecting something like this to show up? It's kind of like bit. raucous. Because in the music store earlier, there were undertones of it. I was expecting yeah. something to this effect, and I was expecting something that was a bit more electric than what we would have seen from, because they're, they're standing in counterpoint. To the acoustic jug band, yeah. While the jug band is cleaner, the Nightmare Boys are arguably more polished. They're a better band. And there's a higher production on it. Costumes, they got effects, they got a fish. (laughs) Did Emmett have a fish? No. I mean, he might have had one for dinner. Everything else about the way this is set, everything about the way they built the physical set, and the, uh, the way that we get to meet all of the characters that are from Frog Hollow lends itself to jug bands. It lends itself to that particular genre of music. Yeah, and the, and the hymnals too. Yeah, it's it's all very sort of salt of the earth. Pastoral. Yeah. And then the River Bottom Boys are something else entirely. And it's something that is significantly higher energy and possibly more catchy. It's sort of forcing itself on that context. I did notice uh, during the number that Wendell seems to be the only one of the jug band that is digging it. <laughs> <laughs> He's backstage bopping along to it. So Wendell's apparently down with it. So so the Nightmare come out and they deliver their big performance and it's huge and it's great. And they win. Did you expect that? Yes, but only because they got subbed in at the last minute. The Nightmare gang never saw the Chug Band as rivals. They barely registered. They trolled them at the clubhouse a little bit, but honestly, they trolled anyone they came into contact with. Emmett and his friends weren't special to them. The story is weaker if Emmett and his friends win that competition. Yeah, it's like the end of Rocky. I still have to see that. Never seen Rocky? Chad, we've been over this. I'm not cultured. I haven't seen. Turn in your passport. Rocky. I haven't seen any of the Rocky movies, including Creed. I haven't seen The Godfather. But Rocky. All right. But you've seen The Karate Kid. I've seen The Karate. I've seen all of The Karate Kid movies. Here's my question We've got this Badger, we've got Doc Bullfrog, and we've got Gretchen Fox. They voted for the metal band. I feel like they've got dirt on someone or multiple someones. Because, sure, they're competent, but they're also not very high on integrity. They're actively singing about how awful they are. The entire song is about being unrepentant bad people. Which, again, in the world of metal, you got a hit on your hands. Okay, so Gretchen Fox doesn't like Alice, or at least is mean to Alice. So maybe I can see her voting against Alice and her son. But Doc Bullfrog voted for the metal band? I don't buy it.
so the winner of our first annual talent contest is the Nightmare. Our heroes who have taken these risks inspired by the dead paw and um, they kind of are sent home, but they're not they're not dejected. They're dejected, but like Emmett and, and Ma aren't. Well, there's that rolling resilience again. You hope to win, but you don't expect to win. You know, capitalism. <laughs> here's where the moral gets a little muddled, I think. Yeah, um, there's value in taking a chance on things, right? But there, there needs to be a conversation that happens and <laughs> some degree of permission on both count. Like, not just me being like, I'm your parent, I can do what I want with this. But just like, here's this thing we're trying to do. This is a good time for us to talk about sacrifice. Now, you've never read Gift of the Magi, right? I haven't. In that story, here's the... Like, this was clearly inspired by it and it's compared to it. I mean, if it's not inspired by it, then we just wasted everybody's time in the first, like, 10 minutes of this episode. They each sacrificed something that was important to them to get something for the other person. And then it's got that dramatically ironic twist that their sacrifices made the other person's gifts useless. In this, they sacrifice... Something of someone else's. Yeah. It's a little bit muddled. I don't even know about the permission part. You're, you're right. In real life, you would want to ask permission for something like that. You'd, you'd have that discussion. And I get what the, the story is going for. But yeah, I do think it makes the, the moral of the story a little fuzzy. And it, it doesn't... Also, long-term planning-wise, like, let's say that I get my mom a piano, a used piano. She's not carting the piano around to go play gigs at different places. I will say in the book, Emmett actually says, if I win, I'll have enough money to buy her a new wash tub and put a down payment on a piano. That's his plan. That's a gambler's fallacy right there, but yeah. I think the spirit is there and uh, of them wanting to do something for the other for Christmas and, and these people who are in dire straits and who are just trying to make something wonderful happen at the time of year where things are supposed to be wonderful. But I, I do admit, yeah, I don't think that quite and that, that is from the source material. I'm not sure that that lesson quite lands as hard as the O'Henry story. And definitely, like, it's a twist on it, but I'm not sure what the twist is meant to tell me. They aren't necessarily trying to push a moral here. They're, the moral might be there in the source material. I think, I think that's the key. Is, um, Jim was never really about moralizing. Mm. And I don't, think they're, I don't think Hoban's concerned with that either. The way this plays out, while it is the characters, some of the characters are different, and there's a little more plot in the in the show than there is in the book. This central conceit is exactly the same. And I'm not sure Hoban was entirely like trying to tell you a beautiful tale about Christmas. I think he was just riffing on Gift of the Magi. <laughs> but something beautiful does happen on their walk home. They start singing together. Her and the boys combine the two songs that they sang in the talent contest into one song. Closer Now and, and Brothers was actually written as one song. And, and the second song was written almost as a string line in the spaces of the first song. We're closer now than ever before. There's love in our world and we're holding it more. As if it was an answer, string line. And then I took the the string lines, put them together, added a little stuff at the beginning and managed to make a song out of it. That makes sense. Some say our world is getting too small. So many things to learn, but we'll enjoy each lesson. I say with kindness there's room for us all. Problems worry us when half the fun is guessing. And very coincidentally, they end up... Uh, finishing their song right in front of the, the Riverside Rest, Doc Bullfrog's restaurant. And uh, he offers them a job, <laughs> happily ever after. 
I'm going to assume, yes. I, I do like the fact that they specified that they would be paid in actual money. I don't think that Doc's above changing the rules or letting another band in at the last minute or... The line that always strikes me, and, and reading the book, this line was Emmett's, but it's, it's Ma's in the movie. Is the pay regular when we play regular? Sure is. And meals are on the house. That was a very mom thing to me. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's excited. She's like, hold on, let's talk logistics for a second before we get excited. And in the book, Emmett says that line. I think it's so much more authentic coming from the mom. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so they get a good job playing a uh, uh, very famous line. Golly, you got mashed potatoes? About Wendell's love of mashed potatoes, which I wish they would have established earlier. Yeah, and they go, and then we, we cut to that night. They get their first gig that night. They're singing the same song. Now, when I was watching it tonight, my wife said, they're going to have to come up with a few more songs. They can run like the Cantina band does. They'll be fine. Well, they have at least two songs. Figuring Dan and the modal nodes, by the way. What do you say? Sounds better than selling snake oil. Well, sure. Nobody wants to oil a snake these days. <laughs> We're closer now than ever before. How much alike we are. There's love in our world. We're showing it you more. Know there may be our world says welcome, stranger. Everybody's a friend. Welcome to our world. And so Ma and Emmett and the boys started to make a little regular money and a lot of really fine music. And from then on, Christmas was a little merrier on the river. But then we get a little bit of an epilogue where after their first show, they come out. They're like, you know, hey, making money's not bad. And I think Emmett even says, like, we're way better at this than we were at mending fences and washing clothes. Then we bring back When the River Meets the Sea is kind of our, our finale. When the mountain touches the valley, all the clouds are taught to fly. Thus our souls shall leave this land most peacefully. I didn't grow up in a religious household at all. We celebrated Christmas, but we didn't. We weren't practicing. You take something like the Charlie Brown Christmas. It has a very, like, there's that very famous moment where Linus kind of gives you the story of Christ. True, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill toward men. And it gets real religious, but specifically religious. And so it's never been my favorite Christmas special because of that. What I love about this is like there is there is such a thing as secular Christmas that is just as, I think, powerful as religious Christmas can be. When the river meets the almighty sea. Before 2020, I was always happy when Thanksgiving rolled around, not having nothing to do with the origin, because the origin's terrible, and a lot of what it precipitated was also terrible. Yeah. But the spirit of a holiday in which you do meet with people that you love and just find things to be grateful for. I think that in itself is a positive thing. There's just always been something about this special where it it feels religious, it feels spiritual, it feels like the spirit of Christmas, but at the same time, I think anyone of any denomination could enjoy it. Jim Henson is one of my personal heroes and has been since I was a kid. Another person in that category is Rod Serling, and that's specifically because he told stories that, sure, they, they came out middle of the 20th century, but they're all about very human elements. So even if they are set in a specific time or place, the heart of it comes in the the dynamics and interactions between people. One of the first things we talked about was the dynamic between Emmett and his ma. That's what carries yeah. this full thing, even when they're and they're not on screen together for like half of it. I feel like the connection between them is still very palpable throughout because that is their driving force. That is their parallel driving force. And really, when you when you really step back and look at the whole narrative, it really is just like these two otters who did something kind of dumb because they think their dad would have done it. And so the, at the end, they sing their dad's favorite song because apparently it worked out in a roundabout way. It worked out. That's another sign of these things, though, right? Where it doesn't, it works out, but not in the way they, they think it's going to. I'm now drawing a weird parallel with uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, because that movie shouldn't work out, but all of his bad decisions cancel each other out. I'm working on about an hour and a half sleep over the past three days. And I'm still trying to remain courteous. I'm beginning to think that that's getting in the way of my being effective. Before we go, I wanted to talk about one thing that is also part of Emmett Lauder lore, which is the gag reel. <laughs> I don't know when this was first released. I think it was on the first DVD release, but there's just an eight minute gag reel from Emmett Otter. And it's got, you know, it's got a few funny pieces, but the centerpiece of it is, uh, so at the very beginning of the, of the special, when the Riverbottom gang is trashing the music store, Ma and Emmett are standing outside and they see their chaos and they say who are they huh beats me hooligans is what they are probably some of those riverbottom boys and then a drum basically a bass drum like a kick drum right rolls out of the store and lands in front of them well Jim wanted it to kind of roll out land and then do that kind of thing where it kind of spins around its rims a little bit and then finally sits and it's obviously Frank and Jerry and, you know, they're on a raised set, so they're underneath the set, and they've got their hands up in Emmett and Ma. They did a rehearsal, and the drum landed perfectly. Then they did the first take, and it didn't. It took them 233 takes to get a shot that Jim liked, and it still wasn't as good. He still was not 100% happy with what they got, but it was close enough. The gag reel has about, I'd say, maybe four minutes. Not all 233 takes, but it is some of my favorite Muppet stuff ever. Watching Frank slowly lose patience. Jerry and Frank losing their damn minds. <laughs> oh, I'd watch all 233 takes. Just in the compilation they assemble in the gag reel, and it's available on YouTube, it's available on the Blu-rays, everyone should check it out. But you can watch them just losing it. And it's such a reminder of how funny Frank Oz is and how funny Jerry Nelson was. I know you hadn't seen it before. I made sure, normally I don't make you watch that stuff, but I was like, you have to watch the gag reel. <laughs> I'm glad I did. Who are they, Ma? Beats me. 
Hooligans is what they are. Probably some of those river bottom boys. Okay, one more time, please. Jump back. My God, it went right in the studio floor. Hey guys, even yeah. if it does that. Sweet Jesus. Good Lord, you see that? Did you see that? Did did you did you see did? But they're always in character doing it, and it's really great. And you know they're just watching it on the monitor down there, and so they're watching it happen there. But uh, it's very funny. I highly recommend it for everyone. Nice turn. <laughs> Who are we, Mom? I couldn't care less. <laughs> you stupid. Flat out, huh? <laughs> just a wham, just fell. Right in the nose. <laughs> Get off my foot. 19C take 233. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I'm getting addicted to it. Who are they, Ma? Beats me. Hooligans is what they are. Probably some of those river bottom boys. Can't we do it again, Ma? Shut up, Emmett. At the end of the day, like I said, I'm not going to be able to be objective about my love for this thing. I think I've acknowledged that there are some flaws to it. And it's impossible for you to have the same feelings about it watching it as an adult um, for the first time. But all in all, like kind of what was your, what did you come away with? My final non-critical verdict of it is this, I could see this being something that I would enjoy showing to my kids. Like I could, I could see myself really enjoying just sitting down and watching it with them, and especially when they're like super young. Uh, the nightmare band might scare them, but that would also make me laugh. So that's okay. It's fine. Even if one doesn't have the emotional attachment that I I have, or that you know other people around my age have that grew up watching it, in the context of this show, it's fundamentally important for the development of the Muppets. So many technological advances they made the world building, the relationship with Paul Williams. There's just so many things. And, and, and like I said, it's almost a trial run for making their own movie. As far as in the story of Jim Henson goes, it's an important uh, milestone. I absolutely agree with that. In 1907, William Porter married his childhood sweetheart Sarah, a fellow writer, but she left him after two years, as alcohol was already destroying his mind, his body, and his career. He died on June 5, 1910, of cirrhosis of the liver and an enlarged heart. In his short 47 years, William Porter released 11 short story collections, with several more following posthumously. O. Henry and all his other pen names collectively published over 400 short stories over the course of 16 years, 80% of them in those last eight in New York. In 1918, the Society of Arts and Sciences created the O. Henry Award, which annually chooses that year's best piece of short fiction. After the Hoban separated, Lillian started writing her own books to illustrate, including a popular series about Arthur the Chimpanzee, which were released in the form of I Can Read Books for Young Children. She wrote a YA novel in 1977, I Met a Traveler, inspired by a young Jewish girl she met while visiting Israel. 
In the 80s, she illustrated over 40 books, both for herself and other authors. She also created Silly Tilly, a charming elderly mole, and wrote three books about her, each one revolving around a different holiday. The final volume, Silly Tilly's Valentine, was published posthumously five months after her death in July of 1998 at the age of 73. According to the online computer libraries, she published 326 works in 1,401 publications in 11 languages, making her one of the most prolific and beloved writer-illustrators in all of children's literature. Once the divorce was final in 1975, Russell quickly remarried and had three more children. His first novel for adults was released in 1973. And, while he would still put out a children's book from time to time, a lot of his focus turned to more mature works, most of them with fantastical themes, including Turtle Diary, The Medusa Frequency, and Ridley Walker. The 1980 post-apocalyptic science fiction novel was his best-selling and most praised work. In 1977, the same year Henson made Emmett Otter, The Mouse and His Child was adapted into an animated film by Murakami Wolf Films, who would later produce television shows like the 1980s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon featuring the voice talents of two Muppet Show guest stars, Peter Ustinov and Cloris Leachman. And, in 1985, his novel Turtle Diary was made into a film with a screenplay written by Harold Pinter. He died on December 13, 2011, of heart failure. He was 86. His final full-length book, a young adult story called Soon Child, was published in 2012. The reviews for Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas were generally quite positive but not a whole lot of people saw it. HBO wasn't the juggernaut that it is today. It did air on ABC in December of 1980. In the wake of that broadcast, the New York Times gave it a stellar review. Jim Henson and the Muppets are on a dazzling winning streak these days. Mr. Henson has produced and directed one of the most charming Christmas specials of the last several years. Once again, Mr. Henson's creations verge on the marvelous, perfectly capturing the wind in the willows aspects of Emmett Otter's story. These really are the nicest folks on the river and on primetime television. After some time at home and the recording of the Muppet Show album and a stop by the Dinah Shore show to celebrate Kermit's birthday, Jim headed back to England, ready to keep riding that dazzling winning streak. It was time to lift the curtains and light the lights on season two. Next time, the future's so bright, we've got to wear shades. Next week, we'll be back doing our, our Muppet Show watch with episodes 201 with guest star Don Nuts and 202 with Zero Mostel. A, a note, we will be watching the DVD version of 201, not the Disney Plus one, because the Disney Plus one is missing the entire closing number <laughs> due to rights issues. Uh, but until next time, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. We'll talk to you next week. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Can you make much money on those pumpkin pies, Ma? Oh, about enough to buy wool for another pair of socks, I guess. Good thinking, Ma. Now you can knit more socks to buy more pumpkins to sell more pies to buy more wool. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. <laughs> Lean into those oars or we'll never get to Waterville.